Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Prep Your Standard NATO. My name is Ashayla Webster, and today I have Bob Shefford with me. Hi, Ashayla. <laughs> Hi, thanks for coming in. That's my pleasure. Okay, Bob, so let's start with your dad. So he was a World War II veteran. Yeah, that's correct. My father was a farmer in the Three Springs or Arano area in the Midwest, and then uh, he joined up. He didn't join up. He was uh, conscripted, mm-hmm. and he went from, from the farm there to Melville Army Camp in Perth, and then ended up on garrison duty on Ratnus Island for uh, for about a year. Oh, it's and worse he... places to be. Well, um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't know whether he really enjoyed his time over there. It was pretty tough going. I mean, mm. it wasn't a holiday island at that stage, and he uh, he helped uh, dig some of the catacombs, they called them. These are the, the tunnels, defensive tunnels that are around the islands. Mm. Not the major ones that's up on the, the major battery, but um, some of the smaller tunnels and, and pits and things. And he was a, a pretty good uh, cricketer. He was a pretty good spin bowler, and uh, so that they had a lot of, lot of uh, you know, sporting events and things like that. And then in 1943, uh, something really nasty happened in the Midwest, mm. um, which really, really changed the the direction of his life. Can you share? Yeah, I can. So <laughs> in, in 1943, uh, the Fourth Battalion, which were uh, soldiers mainly from um, the eastern states around the Sydney area, I believe. Uh, they arrived in Mora as part of a new special mobile force which was being created in the Midwest to repel any Japanese invasion. Uh, at that stage, there was a concern that the Japanese could invade at Durian Bay, and that's really a story within itself. But And in 1943, in the beginning of 1943, the 4th Battalion were doing exercises and they were doing a, a group of men were doing a mortar demonstration and the mortar bomb that they were demonstrating uh, accidentally exploded and killed 14 soldiers. Wow. Um, that had a fairly dramatic effect on the 4th Battalion, and they called for uh, reinforcements. And my father and I think I think there was around about 30 reinforcements from, from Rottnest and other places went to the 4th Battalion in Mora. These guys were pretty fit and pretty strong and were seen as being really good reinforcements. So Dad was amongst sort of maybe 30 West Australians amongst thousands of guys from Victoria and New South Wales, which made life a little bit difficult because they were really blow-ins, if you like, uh, (laughs) compared to the rest of the guys. So then he did a lot of his training around Dandarragan, Moora, Minganew and places like that. Wow. Do you know, I've never heard that story before. Yeah, it's a pretty sad story. And and out on the the road from Moora to uh, Miling, only about three or four kilometres out of out of town on the Moora Road, there's a memorial to those soldiers with the, the details, whatever. Those guys were actually buried in the Moora Cemetery. Mm. Um, then after the war, they were uh, shifted to Karakata. Yeah, very sad. A really, really sad story. Yeah, that's really terrible. So did your dad end up serving overseas as well? Or? Yeah, he was, he was around Western Australia for about a year, and then he ended up in um, New Guinea, you know, all the, all the places that we hear about, you know, Wewak, Lay, Madang, Finchhaven, Saddleburg, those sorts of things. And fortunately, my dad was a little bit of a diarist and he kept a rough diary and he wrote lots of letters to his family. Hmm. And of course, those letters were fairly heavily censored at the time, but at least it can provide me with the ability to sort of backtrack my father's history. Of the 4th Battalion, I think there's only four or five left. And I was really fortunate the other day to meet uh, Tom Newby. Uh, who was actually in the same platoon as my father and Tom's uh, living here in Perth. He's 99 years old and we had a wonderful session and he you know, recalled some of the, the stories about my father and about their activities in, in New Guinea. Yeah, that would have been pretty amazing to meet somebody who served with your dad. Yeah, it was pretty incredible. 
you know, as a kid growing up, Dad never used to talk a lot about his military service, but he'd talk a little bit, and he was always very conscious about me as a son, as a young boy, being prepared Mm -hmm. uh, militarily in case there was another world war. Uh, He certainly encouraged my activities uh, when I joined the cadets in 1969, 1970, and spent four years in the Australian Army cadets. Uh, He encouraged that um, because he he suggested that we should all be prepared uh, and concerned. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, my dad served in the the 90s, and I remember him preparing me for possibilities. Um, So I think that's probably just a byproduct of all that training and that world <laughs> yeah look I agree you know dad had, we'd be down the paddock and we'd be shooting kangaroos and things and he would make sure that I um I knew how to hold the rifle properly and, mm-hmm. and all those sorts of things so yeah he, he was a, a, a really a, a gentleman but like many of the the soldiers that returned and, and I probably didn't notice it as a child too much but I think he struggled a bit and he had a nervous breakdown in the 60s had shock treatment so I think he, he was traumatised by his experience. Mm. And I also had three other uncles who were two of them who served overseas. And they both come back and they were a little bit different, I think. And while we don't recognise at the time, I think generations later I can look at it and think, yeah, I think it did some damage. Yeah, uh, we have to remember that PTSD was only recognised as a thing in the 90s. Yeah, that's correct. So they didn't really get the treatment that they needed back then. No. So look... I. You know, as a kid, I, I, I didn't listen enough to what my father had to say, and I'm lucky I've got these diaries and letters and, and photos and things like that. But just recently, I've become really interested in the military heritage of the Midwest of Western Australia. And a lot of people don't realise, but in you know between 1943 to 1945, or really 1941 to 45, there was a huge military build-up in the Midwest. It was estimated between twenty and 30,000 troops were stationed in places like Mora, Dandarigan, Bechengara, Minginu, along the coast up towards Geraldton. Um, so I'm trying to develop a, a military heritage project in collaboration with uh, RSL, Shires, uh, historical societies, mm. to try and gather some knowledge about that, and I'd really like to write a book about it, uh, about that, that experience. Yeah, it'd be fantastic to learn a bit more about that. Uh, we didn't really learn much about local stuff here in WA at high school or school when we were learning about the war, it was about Japan, it was about Kokoda, it was about Singapore, it was about those really big events. But we had a lot of these big events happening here too. That's that's absolutely correct. And the other thing that I'm, I'm finding is, as, as I do the research for this, is I'm finding out a bit about the role of the Volunteer Defence Corps. Hmm. And these were the, the Dad's Army, we'd call them, but I think they were much better than that. And as I look at that, how they developed in the Midwest 1941-42. You've got to recall that a lot of these guys were World War One veterans uh, from Gallipoli and from France, and they were really, really clever boys. Hmm. Now, the guy who, who formed the Volunteer Defence Corps uh, in Mora, um, and his name was Nicholson, he was the last man to leave Gallipoli, and he was... A, an officer in Gallipoli was abs- actually involved in the evacuation of 10,000 troops, which he did without losing one soldier. And he was the last man to step onto the boat at the end of Gallipoli. He was there the first day and he was there the last day. And when war broke out with Germany, he was started to look at the bigger picture. And though he'd re- re- sort of resigned from the army, 
he understood that there was a huge absence of really good coastal intelligence in the region mm. on the West Australian coast. And there was a genuine concern that Japan would... Um, Australia would eventually be at war with Japan, which it was mm-hmm. in the end, in, you know, and then that they would invade in Durin Bay. And when we look at it now, we think, oh, you know, why would the Japanese bother there? But there was a concern that there would be an invasion at Durin Bay and the Japanese would advance on Pierce, uh, if you like, uh, come through the back door and avoid the uh, heavy fortifications at Rottnest um, and Fremantle and, mm. and the metropolitan area. So Nicholson actually created, with another guy, uh, Reg Nichols, a clandestine, if you like, or a secret uh, group which patrolled the coast north of Perth and created secret maps and plans of the landmarks in the area which could be uh, provided to the regular army. And at that stage, of course, all our trained troops had gone to um, North Africa Mm -hmm. uh, to help the British and Australia was really pretty well, uh, just didn't have any really good trained troops except for the VDC guys, the World War I veterans. Uh, you know, a lot of the young Turks were really keen to um, to sign up and mm. go and fight for king and country, but the old-timers, I think, were sitting back and saying, don't be in a hurry, boys. Um, you know, this is not a lot of fun. And a lot of the, the more pragmatic young Australian men uh, probably knew that there eventually would be conscription, mm. um, so sat back and uh, and waited for that. Because if you were conscripted, you could only fight within Australia or in Australian territories. You couldn't be sent away like the regular army could. I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, that's right. So the CMF, or the Citizen Military Forces, uh, the, these are the young guys who were conscripted, uh, they could be sent to New Guinea because New Guinea was an Australian territory. Mm. But legitimately, they couldn't be asked to fight in anywhere else um, outside of Australia. And in retrospect, uh, that was probably a pretty good move. So, of course, John Curtin demanded from Churchill that Australian troops in North Africa be uh, returned to Australia, and there was a little bit of argy-bargy between uh, Churchill and Curtin. Um, but those second Australian infantry guys uh, came back and, uh, you know, they were, they played a pivotal role in training and, of course, many of them, you know, got lost in uh, in Southeast Asia. Uh, yeah, it's interesting stories. Oh, it's absolutely fascinating. Um, I mean, if, like I said, if I go back to what I learnt in school, I remember learning that this was the first time that we became under threat. This is the first time they thought we could legitimately be uh, attacked. But there was no context to that. We were told that, but we weren't told that all these systems were being set up here in WA. Yeah. It's really fascinating information that I really feel that we should have learnt about. Yeah, look, I agree. And and I think we need sometimes to bring the war home mm. to, you know, it, it's not all about, and I'm not denigrating the, the work of soldiers at Kokoda or Gallipoli, but we really don't have to go that far to see our military heritage and even if you go to Rottnest Island and, and you walk around in the bush and peer behind trees, you'll still see the evidence of World War activities there, the trenches, the barbed wire um, that are rusting in peace. Yeah, so I think there's lots of opportunities. And people, a lot of people perhaps don't realise that the Japanese had submarines cruising up and down the uh, West Australian coast mm. and Port Gregory north of uh, Jordan was shelled by Japanese, by a Japanese submarine. Uh, there were planes that were flying over, which perhaps from uh, from Timor, Japanese Timor, or from cruisers or raiders, and, and the Japanese even had aeroplanes on some of their submarines. Um, and 
And I'm also trying to get my head around some of the reports of Japanese landings in the vicinity of Durian Bay. Mm. And recently I found an oral history online from, from a, a soldier who reported seeing a submarine land uh, or uh, surface and uh, Japanese sailors come ashore and get water from a waterhole. That's terrifying. Uh, at, at Durian Bay, <laughs> yes. And he was, he was on a little ridge with two of his mates and all they had was a, a pistol and a three oh three and the radio. And they, the report says they radioed Pierce and Pierce sent up an Avro Anson with a single bomb on it which um, tried to bomb the submarine and missed. But you hear these anecdotal stories, but when you go back to the official army diaries and records, you can't find it mm. written down. Conspiracy theorists would suggest that um, military forces didn't want to reveal all this information to public. Um, I'm not so sure. I, I just, I'd like more information, but it's, it's time-consuming, it's very difficult, and it's rather expensive to get hold of files from the National Library. You know, every time you, you get a file out from the library... Or the National Archives, you know, it costs you $50. And, uh, Ouch. <laughs> um, so you've got to be very selective, and you really don't know what gems you're going to find until you actually read them. And sometimes you get some really dud material that really has got no interest, but <laughs> you go, oh, well, you put that one down to experience. So my, my eventual plan, if I get this project running in collaboration with communities, um, is to write a book about the build-up of the military in, uh, in the Midwest of Western Australia. Yeah, that'd be an absolutely fascinating read and I think something that should be taught in all schools and you can actually go out on a field trip and see some of this stuff. Yeah, that's right. And look, there is physical evidence. Uh, I was up in Moora the other day uh, talking to uh, one of the old-timers who, who, wasn't, who was eight years old, I think, at the, the time of the war, but he has recollections because he had uh, lots of uh, troops and tanks and things camped on the family farm. So he mm. got to know a lot of these soldiers he used to wander around their camp as a kid and hear the stories. They took me out to a rubbish tip on their farm, and there in the rubbish tip was the tracks off a Bren gun carrier and a big heap of World War Two material. There was uh, latrines and there was uh, cooking pots, and and then a, a hole had been dug that was full of bottles and things like that. <laughs> There's evidence of of these guys. Mm. Now the army were pretty good at cleaning up after themselves, and you know they dug lots of holes and buried lots of stuff. Uh, and as an archaeologist. I love digging in the dirt and finding this stuff. So, <laughs> Getting um, the candy store. <laughs> yeah. And we went to another farm, and on the farm, the, the farmer said, oh, there's an old oven up in the up in the ranges there. So we went up into the hills, and there was a stone oven which had been uh, built by a sapper uh, in around about 1943. Hmm. And fortunately, he'd actually been able to... He actually put his initials in the cement as the cement was dry, drying and also put his serial number in there. So I was able to go to the museum, uh, the Australian War Museum, and look at his files and find out what his name was and where he was. So he's he's really left a, a mark in Mora, and I'd really like to contact his family down the track and see if I can, uh, you know, I'm sure they'd love to go and see the spot where, there, you know, he uh, he built this oven and which baked bread for the, for the troops. Yeah, that little family connection. It's it's always nice being able to to trace some of that history and see where your ancestors have set before. Yeah, that's correct. And even up near uh, Mora, there's, um, or actually out near um, Dandarigan, during Bay, there's a cave out there which has got serial numbers of soldiers uh, written with pencil on the hmm. stalactites and stalagmites in the cave. And I find that quite fascinating. I, I've seen photos. I'd, I'd love to go and have a look and, and try and track down through their their numbers who they were. Hmm. And that provides you know evidence of them actually being there. But if you think about it, twenty to 30,000 troops in the Midwest... 
and you see some of the photos of, of tanks and brain gun carriers, you know, General Grant tanks that were unloaded at the railway station in Moora and they're in exercises across the sand plain. The whole concept was this special mobile force that could, could repel uh, Japanese invaders from, from Geraldton through to Perth. If, if you think about it strategically, if you if you sort of if you've ever been up to Kalbarri, you know you've got those cliffs, and those cliffs really run all the way to Shark Bay and really pretty much up towards Carnarvon. Mm. So that sort of country was wasn't really conducive to an invasion, whereas the the coast between Geraldton and Perth probably was. And there's evidence uh, which is starting to appear that the Japanese had a really good knowledge of Durian Bay and the Western Australian coast because in World War One they were actually Australia's allies mm. under the Anglo-Japanese um, alliance. And Japanese uh, cruisers, or the Ibuki, one cruiser escorted uh, Australian troops to Gallipoli. And there were three or four cruisers that were designated to prowl up and down the West Australian coast and out into the Indian Ocean to uh, help against uh, German raiders such as the Emden, which was sunk by the Sydney. And when... While they were here, they were welcomed by the Australian community because they were actually providing the, the first defence, if you like, of our West Australian coast. And they were given all courtesies and the reports say all information required. So you can imagine that the, uh, the Japanese Navy acquired all the, the maritime charts of Western Australia, all the intelligence in relation to Western Australia, uh, and held on to that. And that information would have been, from the First World War, would have been very important to them in the Second World War. Mm. And really, you know, the charts, the, the the nautical charts that were provided didn't change much over 20 years. In fact, um, the Archdeacon uh, nautical charts of our coast, which were produced in the 1800s or late 1800s, were still in use right up until about the 1950s. Wow. So they had those charts. Um, and there's also evidence that uh, Japanese cruisers did actually anchor in Durian Bay um, during or short, shortly after World War One. So they had a fairly good knowledge of the coast. So basically WA was quite possibly screwed. <laughs> yeah, oh, look, certainly. Um, the, if, if there had been an invasion, and there's arguments between, within historians as to whether the Japanese intended to invade Australia or not. Uh, it's an argument I'm trying to avoid. Uh, I don't really <laughs> want to take a side each way. What, mm-hmm. what is really clear is from the Australian point of view, there was a perception that the Japanese would invade Australia. Mm. Now, whether that perception was produced by propaganda by government to try and uh, activate Australian sentiment uh, to help with the war effort, or whether uh, it, it was a genuine concern. So West Australians really did consider they would be invaded, and there were plans for evacuation. And in that critical period from the end of 1941 in the early months of 1942, a few old men, really held the key to the defence of Western Australia uh, and these were the Volunteer Defence Corps and those guys were instructed to uh, carry out guerrilla um, attacks on invading forces to provide intelligence to regular Australian army troops if they were available to evacuate um, civilians to the east towards Kalgoorlie to burn all crops, to shoot all cattle uh, to destroy homesteads, burn homestead sheds pollute and uh, poison water holes hmm. and really provide a rear guard action. That was, And, and to do this, uh, they had uh, shotguns, uh, 22 rifles, um, uh, a few 310 rifles, uh, no uniforms and no transport. Um, and as such, they were really a static force. They had to really 
be the last man standing, if you like. Mm. And I'm sure they would have acquitted themselves very well, uh, but we're all very thankful that didn't happen. Oh, yeah, hugely thankful that didn't yeah. happen. That could have changed a huge course, but it sounds like a, a group of people that we should be talking about a lot more and showing our respects to a lot more because they very well could have been our last line of defence. Yeah, that's that's correct. Um, when the, the second IF returned to Australia and, and there was a lot better training and there was a build-up of the military, um, you know, things things got much safer. Um, my research is not including the northwest, uh, Broome, Port Hedland, um, those places that were attacked and bombed and whatever. And there's been lots of history written about that. Mm. Uh, I'm really concentrating on the southwest. Um, I also like to follow the lives of uh, various soldiers when I do research. And I did follow the story of uh, one young uh, guy from Mora who was from a, a, a pioneering Mora agricultural family. And at the outbreak of World War II, he joined uh, up as a member of the Light Horse and then uh, a second machine gun company. And he went to Syria. And then when he returned to Australia, he uh, went to Java mm-hmm. to defend Java. And he was actually taken prisoner by uh, the Japanese and he ended up in a POW camp with Weary Dunlop. Oh, I was now, just reading a book about this yeah. this troop. Okay, now if if you read read that book, um, and and I won't mention the guy's name because out of respect to his family, because mm-hmm. it's something I haven't discussed with the family at this stage. Um, but he is mentioned in Weary Dunlop's book, and what happened? He was taken to the guardhouse at this prison of war camp where he was interrogated, and he was brutalised, and then he was in solitary confinement for two and a half months because he didn't reveal the information that the Japanese interrogators wanted. Now, that information, those questions are not really revealed in Weary Dunlop's book. Mm -hmm. But what I found out afterwards was that he he was actually interrogated about Durian Bay. Mm. So being a Mora family, the the Japanese worked out where he came from, he probably told them, and they went, okay, this guy's going to provide us with information about Durian Bay, and he refused to submit to their interrogation. And he, he obviously realised that um, this was of strategic significance to the Japanese, the information he would... So he, he was prepared to, to cop, cop it. He thought he was going to be executed, uh, but he was in solitary confinement for two and a half months. And Weary Dunlop says in his memoirs that when he was finally released, he looked like he was white and fat and looked like something that you'd find if you turned over a stone. <laughs> now, unfortunately, this guy was sent from prison war camp to Japan towards the end of the war mm-hmm. and the ship that he was travelling on was torpedoed by a American submarine and he lost his life. Mm. And the story of uh, of his interrogation wasn't released um, until post-war 1945 and I found the newspaper article. And I like that story. I don't like the result and, and but I think we can all respect the, the, the trauma that that young soldier went through, 22, 23 years old. And his understanding of the ramifications of the interrogation. And, you know, I think he was a very, very brave lad. And his family must be very proud of him. I'm not sure whether the family know all the story that I've just just um, talked about. And I hope mm. to talk to the family in due course. Um, but it's those sorts of stories that actually provide some context to some of the, the things we hear about military history. And, yeah, I really like tracking down individual people and see where they end. 
it, it brings a, a face to it, as you say, it brings it home when you can track one person and find out their history and what they went through, what happened to them. It makes it more personal. Yeah, it sure does. Um, and, you know, I find little snippets about my father's activities in, in war diaries. I, I found a really interesting newspaper report about uh, my father, uh, Robert Shepherd, and uh, the old guy that I went and saw recently, um, Tom Newby or Alec Newby. Um, and there was a newspaper report in the Daily News in Western Australia and it says, WA men emulate men with a donkey. And uh, what happened on the north coast of uh, New Guinea was uh, Alec Newby and my father, Rob Shepherd, uh, managed to capture a, a couple of horses which the Japanese had abandoned on the beach when they withdrew. And they looked after these horses, cleaned them up, and they heard that there was some uh, Chinese uh, abandoned in a, in a mission up in the ranges. And Dad and Alec went and made several trips up to the mission and brought all the children and uh, the sick uh, Chinese people that had been abandoned by the Japanese down to the coast wow. on these uh, on these horses. Um, and it's quite a story, and I, I, t- I talked to Alec Newby about it the other day, which was really interesting to get his perception mm. on it. So, yeah, you follow those stories, and, uh, you know, and, and, and when I drive around, I, I, I suppose one of the things that really made me think about this in recent times was... As an archaeologist, I've been working with the Shire of Dandarragon on Radar Station 48, which was built on North Head, uh, north of uh, Durian Bay. And we've done excavations up there. And I've discovered since that the army camp where we were doing the excavations and we were finding bits and pieces, bullets and toothpaste containers and brill cream bottles and beer bottles and all sorts of things, was actually a camp where my father camped. So here I am you know, generations later, digging stuff out of the ground which might have been or was related to my father's time along the coast in the Midwest. So that really, you know, really brings it home to me. Yeah, and that's, that's why I've amazing. got interest. Yeah. Wow. And, and to be working with my son as well, who's also an archaeologist. <laughs> so, you know, there's, there's an, another generation of him working on a site where his grandfather was in World War II in, you know, 1942, 43. That is, stuff. That's amazing. It's amazing. I mean, the whole thing is just an amazing story. All the little stories and then the overarching you and your family. This is this is really cool. I'm getting a little bit worked up because this, this <laughs> oh, is good. fascinating. I, I, I'm glad. Yeah, look, <laughs> yeah and, and look, th- this is just a little snippet of of the bigger picture. And uh, I, I presented a, a history conference in Savandis last mm. weekend for the Royal WA Historical Society about the military history of the Midwest, and got a huge response from the from the people there lots of them came out uh, and had a chat to me afterwards um, I put a slide up on the PowerPoint of an ABC concert mm-hmm. which was held at Dandarragon in 1943 um, and there was 3,000 troops attended this this uh, a concert and they had a Welsh a lady singing um, Australian uh, Symphony Orchestra ABC um, they it was in a natural amphitheatre near a, a dam and they had candles floating out onto the dam and it was a huge night, a big night. And after the conference, this lady came out to me and she said, Bob, I just love that photo. Can I get a copy, please? My dad was the compere of the concert. Oh, wow. And she'd never seen the photo. Wow. Um, so I've, I've sent her a few photos. And the photo I'd actually got from a guy in America who used to live in WA who picked up a photo album in an op shop in Western <laughs> Australia years ago. And he now lives in America. And uh, he found my web page or my uh, Facebook page and uh, recognised the importance of these photos and scanned them and sent them to me. 
Um, and that's the world we live in these days. Things can happen really fast. Oh, yeah. Yes, they can. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so you mentioned your Facebook and your web page. What are they? Where can people find you? Yeah, the best thing is uh, my Facebook page, really, Heritage Detection Australia. So if you type that into Facebook um, search, Heritage Detection Australia, uh, you'll get my uh, Facebook page. And there's lots of World War Two photos on there. Um, beautiful photos that have been provided by the Mora Historical Society um, of uh, volunteer defence corps guys, mm-hmm. um, army activities along the coast. And look, I'm, I'd love to hear from anybody who's got any memories of that or any archival material or any photos or any interest or anything that can help me with an understanding of the, the military build-up in the Midwest of Western Australia. I'd just love to hear. I'm, I'm sure the stuff's out there. And, and if, you, if you look at 30,000 troops and you look at the generations that have followed, there are thousands and thousands of Australians who are now starting to show some interest in their military heritage mm. and who are actually vil- visiting the Midwest and are going to historical societies, going to uh, councils and saying, can you tell me where my father was stationed here in World War II? You know, where are the sites? Um, so, you know, there's a growing interest in that. It's just wonderful. Hey, if uh, you can't get funding from someone else, maybe we should hit up tourism Western Australia and go, guys, there might be an industry in this. Well, well, that's what I'm sort of hoping. If I can get the groundswell going, and, and I will be presenting a PowerPoint production about an hour in Mora, mm-hmm. uh, hopefully at the community centre in the beginning of November. But I'll put that information up on the Facebook. Yeah, there's lots of people out in Mora in those regions. A lot of you know, farmers that have got connections that go back a long time, and they've got lots of stuff tucked away in their sheds and in their cupboards, are really interesting military stuff. And you know, and I've heard a wonderful story of a, a Bren gun carrier or a tank buried in a paddock um, because cool. it broke down. <laughs> they dug a hole and buried it when they left. I'd love to find that. Yeah, let's go dig that up. That'd be a story, wouldn't (laughs) it? That'd be great. Yeah. All right, well, um, guys, make sure you jump on Facebook, check out Heritage Detection Australia, check out the website as well. There's some really cool blog posts on there. Thank you so much for coming in. This was fascinating. No worries. That's my pleasure. Cheers. This podcast was edited, published and produced by the RSLWA. Head to www.rslwa.org.au for other content. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast and follow us on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook.